Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. Kristen, I am just so happy today. Are you? I, I, I'm so happy. As we're recording this, I, I've just watched the Masked Singer finale. Oh. And do, do you know who the winner of the Masked Singer was? I, I do. It was, my, well, first of all, I mean, uh, in, in terms of the world of the Masked Singer, it was my favorite character, the monster. Yes, who, I know. Who, who, when I look in the mirror now, the monster is what I see. Uh, <laughs> but then it turned out that the monster was T-Pain. And and T Pain, this this person who for for so long you know had been kind of castigated for his use of auto tune and like you know whenever you even mentioned auto tune in the early part of this decade, you mentioned T Pain. It turns out he can really sing. It's just it's such a beautiful example of I guess what this show can do. Exactly, I mean, I just, it's it, about it totally. The re- it's redemption. It's redemption. It totally recontextualized everything we thought we knew about T Pain, and I am so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited for him. So this is this is a, I'm, I'm excited about the other shows we're talking about today, but we're, we're starting from a place of pure joy. Just joy. Congrats <laughs> to the monster slash T Pain, uh, and the other one. Who was the other one? Oh, the peacock was Donny Osmond. The peacock was Donny Osmond, and then the bee, uh, of course, was uh, Gladys Knight. Um, and and really, it was just great because I mean, Gladys Knight and Donny Osmond, great to see them. And in a way, it was a good reminder of the fact that, like, you know, these are people who are good at performing. Yes. I mean, like, you know, like, like I would probably not have gone out of my way to have watched Donny Osmond sing for, for multiple weeks, but now because he was behind the mask, I'm like, wow, he's such a performer. Um, but exactly. just, it, it, but, but it seemed, I mean, it seems strange to say that T Pain finished ahead of them, but <laughs> I, I, I think that's kind of, I, I think to me that gets at like the wonder of the show, yes. really. That like, I mean, you know, Gladys Knight is a good singer. You know, Donny Osmond, however cheesy you might think he is is a true performer but t-pain t-pain <laughs> singing singing sam smith stay with me oh god thank you television thank you television that maybe that's what we should have called this podcast thank you television <laughs> <laughs> well in keeping with uh the theme of joy although our first show is a little uh mixed on the joy and the darkness uh, bringing it down bringing it down let's kick things off with our what's new segment in which darren and i talk about this week's most notable new and returning show premieres. So our first show is a six-episode, half-hour Netflix dramedy, which is created, written, and directed by comedian Ricky Gervais. In Afterlife, he stars as a newspaper writer named Tony. After losing his wife Lisa to cancer, Tony exists in a haze of rage and despair, and he treats everyone, including his co-workers at the local paper where he works, with a caustic rudeness and repeated threats of suicide. Of course, over the course of the six episodes, forces conspire to help Tony rediscover his will to live. And even though his arc is predictable, his transition is really heartfelt and moving. Tony meets an older widow at the graveyard, played by the wonderful Penelope Wilton from Downton Abbey, and she helps him with her clear-eyed wisdom. He meets a nurse, played by the always excellent Ashley Jensen, who uh, she plays a nurse who refuses to excuse Tony's behavior, and you know from the get-go that she's going to be his love interest. Uh, and Darren, as you know, I loved this show. It made me laugh so hard, I cried, and it made me cry, actual emotion tears. And uh, 
even though I knew exactly where it was going, I loved the story. I loved the scenes at Tony's workplace, which to me had the real oddball sweetness of uh, Ricky Gervais's most famous creation, The Office. And I also loved how freely the British use the C word. Um, <laughs> I know at this point you are tired of me raving about this show, but I so now I want to give you a chance to tell me what you thought of it. Uh, Kristen, you were entirely correct. Uh, it was great because um, I think my experience of the show, I, I've seen the first two episodes, was similar to yours initially, um, where there's a point in the first episode where, you know, we were kind of following Ricky Gervais' character around. Um, he's kind of wearing the Ricky Gervais uniform, yes. this sort of like, you know, <laughs> V-neck t-shirt that I, I, I feel like I see him in everywhere. And he kind of has this speech where he kind of more or less says that in his grief, he's decided to just sort of say whatever he wants to say. And, and you know, he thinks it's fine and he's thinking about killing himself anyway so what does it matter and for a second I was a little concerned that we were watching the kind of project that was basically like the subtext is comedian casts himself as person who says whatever he wants to say to people and that's right. just not that interesting but there's so much more humanity to it than that um, you know you kind of mentioned his workplace and the people around him and however much um, however much you're kind of expecting that to be a kind of bantering workplace friend family um, there's just a real wonderful quality to the supporting cast there that makes it feel so much more three-dimensional. Um, and in the second episode, one thing I noticed, and I'd love to know if this continues for the season, is there's a sort of, I don't want to say repetition, but you know, each episode so far that I've seen, he goes to visit his dad, he goes to work, he goes to the grave, he's watching um, these videos that his wife recorded for him before she died. And I, I found that the somewhat old-fashioned nature of that repetition, the feeling that you know yeah. he is, he, he's, he's living his life kind of day to day and we're seeing these situations I, I found it really deepened my my feelings for the characters um, th this show is quite funny at times and, and there's a, a, a little bit of just sort of fun bits of you know he works for this local very small free newspaper and he's kind of constantly going to cover such <laughs> local phenomena as you know man gets sent five of the same birthday card or right. uh, you, you know local boy can play two recorders out of his nose you know there's, there's stuff like that and somehow those bits which I, I, I think a lesser comedian would sort of make them a bit of a freak show. You yeah. know, it would be just sort of like, oh, like here we are in a small town, everyone's lame. Um, it really struck me that Gervais, who again is writing and directing every episode along with starring in it, um, he finds a fascinating amount of um, sincerity that, that runs alongside of the fact that his character, as you said, is a, you know, C-word dropping, you know, very amusingly kind of nihilistic character. So I just, it, it really worked for me in so many ways. Um, yeah. How did you, um, how, how did you kind of feel, you know, having seen the whole season? Um, it sounds as if like it sounds as if the, the overall journey of it really worked for you so well. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it the first two episodes are definitely like you said, they sort of set up this universe and the and the the world of his coworkers at the office. It's just great because, you know, he, he for example, he is obsessed with making fun of uh, the the photographer named Lenny who works at the <laughs> Lenny is like sort of bald and schlubby. <laughs> And, and Tony's always obsessing over the folds of skin on the back of his neck. He's like, it's like a pug. And it reminded me, I don't know if you ever listened to the Ricky Gervais podcast, but it reminded me of the way Ricky Gervais himself would obsess over his producer, Carl Hilkington's head, and how he would always say it looks like an orange. And he was just like, but so there's that. But there was something so sweet in the first episode when um, there's a new uh, co-worker at the newspaper. Uh, her name's Sandy, a young woman played by Mandeep Dillon. And 
when you know Tony's making fun of Lenny, and and then Sandy says to him later, "Do you do you mind him talking to you like that?" And Lenny's response literally made me cry. He said, "Oh, he's a mate. It distracts him." Like there was such <laughs> sweetness in that. Like he's like, "I know my friend Tony is hurting, and my way of helping him is letting him make fun of this the folds of skin on the back of my neck." I just thought that was so sweet, and that there's this that kind of humanity that underlies it. And I will say, and I do think it's worth noting, it gets dark like some dark stuff happens in three and four and uh you know it's there's actually something quite shocking that tony does uh but it does it doesn't derail the show in a way where you're suddenly like this is really grim and unhappy because what happens is it leads to this inevitable like you know that by the end of the six episodes he's going to find his will to live again um but it he really does have to uh you know, hit a rock bottom to get there. Um, but I would just say, you know, don't be don't be thrown off or sort of uh, dissuaded by you know t- how Tony decides to cope early on uh, mm-hmm. because uh, it does end up getting you to a very heartwarming place. And uh, and I loved seeing Ricky Gervais with Ashley Jensen again. She was on yes. his great show, Extras. And she's so incredibly funny, and it's wonderful to see them together. We'll be talking about her again when a Catastrophe returns, because she's so great there, too. But, um, Kristen, in your uh, awesome review of the show, uh, so awesome that someone in Ricky Gervais uh, t- retweeted <laughs> it, I believe, you kind of mentioned that uh, at one point, Ashley Jensen plays a nurse who's caring for Tony's uh, aging father, who who's, you know, very much kind of lost to him at this point. I'm not sure if he's meant to have dementia or, 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 or um, Alzheimer's. Um, but she has a line to Ricky Gervais that I think kind of cuts to the core of the show, which is like, um, you're like a troll on Twitter just because you're upset. Everybody else has to feel upset. And something about that line... You know, Ricky Gervais is a really interesting creator, and I think that, like, you know, on one hand, for a lot of people, I think it's The Office is just such a mountaintop yes. of television, and, you know, the original British show just stands heads and tails above pretty much any other comedy made made this century. Um, but he's always an interesting person to follow, and there's an aspect of this show where this might be kind of a reach. It almost seems like it's his response to, like, to like Trump and Brexit and this kind of toxicity in the yes. culture where, you, you know, you have this person who, again, the the kind of, you know, Hollywood hot concept pitch on this is, you know, guys die, guy's wife dies and he now says whatever's on his mind. And, like, right. you know, you, you, know you, you see that being this sort of like, you know, jokey thing where he's walking around dressing people down. And I think what I love about the show is that as much as there is the comedy of that and of him being, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of, kind of overly rude to a lot of people, um, it always is really clear on the fact that it's coming from a place of, of real sadness. Yes. Um, and, and even just, you know, a lot of the scenes of him alone at his computer watching his wife's you know videos um, and, and smiling in those moments as she's telling him to not do all the things he's doing like as she's saying like don't drink too much as he opens up a bottle of wine at two in the <laughs> afternoon and you know you know like do the dishes as he piles up the dishes um, I, I just think that there's such a delicacy to that to kind of finding this character who seems to be just sort of like, whatever, I, I can do whatever I want to now. And never losing sight of the fact that, like, you know, he's him doing 
doing that is making it worse for him. <laughs> exactly. And he does realize, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that this has a very uplifting ending and a very sweet ending because like you can see that coming a mile away. And I do, I do think what you're saying is like, it is kind of, it's this man who's dwelling and like intentionally sort of wallowing in this toxicity who realizes eventually that like, Yes, there are a lot of terrible things happening. You know, I've gone through something awful, but I have a choice now of how I'm going to interact with the world as as a result of this. And I can either choose to be toxic and be miserable like the world, or I can choose to, uh, you know, and this sounds so stupid, but I'm just going to say it, I can choose kindness. And that's what he, you know, he, the decision that he comes to. And I do agree that uh, that's, you know, I think that could very well be a re reaction to, you know, our socio-political climate right now. I would also say that we can't not talk about the dog. The dog is amazing. The re <laughs> Tony has a dog that he's, you know, had with his wife for many years. And it's the one reason he literally says it's the one reason he hasn't killed himself yet because he's worried about the dog. Like he doesn't want to leave the dog alone. And that, that is a, a theme that goes throughout and the dog really is, you know, uh, a, a big character in the show and, and is the one thing clearly keeping him alive early on. What's going on with like guys and their dogs lately? Cause like it, it all goes back <laughs> to John wick. I, I, I think it's all about like, like sad people need, need things or, or creatures to take care of. Um, if, if only we could give the whole world a, a dog half as cute as, as the dog in the afterlife. I know she's a good dog. Everyone check out afterlife. It debuts on Netflix in its entirety on uh, the 8th of March. Uh, and while you're at it, uh, go and read Kristen Baldwin's review. Cause Ricky Aww. Gervais did and he seemed to like it. <laughs> Um, Kristen, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about another comedy uh, that I find uh, equally heartwarming and occasionally equally depressing uh, in, in a way in, in a way that's never over the top, but that certainly is um, somewhat unique in, in the realm of, of network television. Uh, the show is Superstore, which is in its fourth season on NBC. It returns this Thursday at 8 o'clock after taking some time off. Um, and Superstore, Kristen, is a show that I slept on for a very long long time. Um, this is the workplace comedy set at a Cloud9 superstore, kind of a Target-esque place, mm -hmm. although within the world of the show, it's made clear that Target is much, much fancier than Cloud9 is. Um, and it's just, when it debuted, I, I, I think I, I, I took a quick look at it and did not think it was anything special, uh, which is further evidence that uh, I'm wrong a lot of the time, because the show has really grown into being um, just a really fantastic fantastic uh, weekly sitcom. Um, I, I really started to get into it towards the end of the third season, and I, I want to give full credit to uh, critic Todd Vanderwerf over at Vox, who's been beating the drum for this show <laughs> relentlessly. Um, and quite accurately, uh, what this show has become, Kristen, I think is really remarkable because, you know, it is a workplace sitcom. It is set kind of um, among the people who work at this gigantic store. Um, and without ever really reinventing the wheel in the way that I think a lot of comedies nowadays try try to. It's just developed um, a tr really tremendous ensemble cast um, to the point where a lot of times on the show, you'll have the scene where all the employees get together in the break room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is this is the kind of scene you've seen on literally every workplace sitcom, whether it's news radio, whether it's The Office. But the cast is so stellar that in those sequences, 
they could have like 13 funny people just kind of and the rate at which the gags are pinballing back and forth between them is so tremendous um, one thing I've really loved about this season especially uh, and one of the reasons why I put this show uh, on my top 10 of 2018 is that they've done great work with Amy played by America Ferreira um, she uh, was pregnant at the start of the season and there were a couple episodes that to me really summed up what's great about the show um, where they drew a lot of comedy from the fact that her health care was kind of crappy. <laughs> And they drew a lot of comedy from the fact that um, because of essentially a, a series of bureaucratic job-related things, um, she only had like, she essentially only had like two days of maternity leave. Uh. And like, these these are things that, you know, I consider to be like truly hor horrifying elements of our capitalist system. But the show kind of is very adept at being a little bit realistic about these characters yes. and a little bit realistic about what it is like, you know, to work in such a customer service facing uh, job and anyone who's ever worked customer service knows that your life is sort of a series of tornadoes of hell and you just the moments when you're not interacting with customers are these brief moments of of uh, you know of grace um and even just the way in which the individual characters have been so developed um there's an episode coming up that focuses in on the character mateo played by uh, nico santos um who is uh he is essentially an undocumented worker at, at, at this point we've kind of discovered um and in order to begin to seek political asylum He's from the Philippines. He sort of goes on this weird journey where he attempts to create a fake group that is against <laughs> um, the Filipino uh, head of state, um, Duterte. And it just, it spirals so quickly. And it just, I don't know, I, I love, the, uh, there's a certain way that the show can build off of what I would say is a core of like genuine workplace truth. And then it just goes in all kinds of wonderful directions. Um, is, is, this, is, is this a show that you've been following uh, uh, at all, Kristen? You know, it isn't. I dip in and out, but I, I watched uh, probably four episodes uh, from this season, including the, the newer ones. And I agree. Like, I love that it turns things like this guy trying to apply for asylum, which is grim, or poor Amy with her two days of maternity leave, you know, and it turns it into comedy and not yeah. like in a slapsticky or silly way. It's just really, it's relatable. And so often when TV tries to make shows about quote unquote real people, it's so usually very clearly the creation of like Ivy League educated comedy writers who are living in <laughs> LA. And there's, there's often this sort of whiff of pity slash self-satisfaction like look we're telling the stories of the real people in the flyover states but you know this doesn't do that at all this has real respect for these characters and it just leads with interesting characters and stories and the stories happen to be about their very relatable real lives there's no sort of condescension or anything like that and, um, you know, I, I, I also think that it does such a nice job with straightforward, quote unquote, situation comedy yes. while also deconstructing it. Like, I love there's, you know, Amy and her uh, love interest, Jonah, played by Ben Feldman. They had been caught on tape having sex, like in the photo lab or something. And the accidental se sex tape, you know, sort of gets released and everybody sees it. And she 
when she comes back to work, she's upset that like no one is teasing her about it, but they're all teasing Jonah. Like, and she feels like she takes umbrage at the fact that, uh, as she puts it, they think as a woman, I must be filled with shame about it. So she makes a big deal about how she's not ashamed to have sex. Like she's going on, you know, making this campaign of like, hey, it's the principle of the thing. You should be ragging on me for this just the way you're ragging on Jonah. And I thought that was a really interesting twist to that yeah. kind of situation. And, and that episode is so great, uh, you know, because then you kind of have uh, Glenn Sturgis, the manager, played by the great Mark McKinney. Oh, so good. Um, he's, he's like on eggshells that entire episode. because He's <laughs> kind of like, you know, we're, we're living in a new era and it's like, he has some line that's like, you know, it's post me too, post this is us. And it's just like, it's such a, <laughs> it, 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 it's such a wonderful example of how the show can do these things that are, I mean, you know, if not ripped from the headlines, then that, that are certainly like, you know, topical, but it always does it in a way where it feels um, very like focused on the characters. There's another yes. new episode um, after the show returns where you have a kind of fully Orwellian situation where Cloud9 Corporate initiates a, a steps challenge. They're going to track how many steps each employee takes over the course of you know a given. I think it's a I, th- I think it's a one week challenge, and you know they are um, competing the different outlet stores against each other, and it's just it's such a deeply unsettling thing where you're kind of like oh they're literally tracking our walk and it turns into again just the way the show spirals so quickly is great where it becomes this competition with other stores and I just think that you know again it's such a lineup such a true murderer's row of uh, you know great uh, um, comedy people on this show they all have just these varying degrees of I don't know. They're so specific without being cartoony. There's the character Dina, who's yes, the kind I of love you know her. super badass assistant store manager, played by Lauren Ash. And again, like when I first saw the show, I kind of said, "Oh, I get it. She's like the Dwight True. She's right, kind of right. wacky." And just and just I, I just think that the show has really developed each of them to this point where th- sometimes what happens on the show is so loopy. And there's an episode coming up where she brings her birds to the store, and just it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a moment where you're like, you, you know, it's not it's not realistic in any way, but it's it's just feels very true to the characters and i think that when you have really a big ensemble cast like like superstore does now uh, that's just really remarkable and it you know honestly it's going to affect how i look at future workplace sitcoms in terms of like i'm gonna do my best not to underestimate them you know it doesn't mean that i'm gonna i'm thinking specifically and we'll probably talk about it in a future episode of uh the new nbc a show coming up called Abby's, which is about a backyard bar and, you know, the people who come to the backyard bar. And I've watched a couple episodes and I sort of thought like, eh, all right, I get it. But this show, Superstore, really does prove that, you know, something like that can evolve into a really solid, really funny uh, ensemble comedy. You can't just immediately write it off. And I think, you know, as you admitted, and, and I myself did the same thing, you know, a lot of people did just sort of write this show off immediately, like, oh, okay, I get it. It's a workplace comedy and whatever. Um, but they're re- you, if you have the right cast and the right writers, you really can turn it into something special. Superstore airs Thursdays on NBC. Everybody go check it out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be many more seasons of this show, but, you know, give it some love. You yeah, know, like uh, just 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 dip in. It's 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 another show, Kristen. Where if you haven't watched in a while or haven't watched anything, you can jump right in and start to enjoy it. And you know, you just can't say that about True Detective. No, you cannot. <laughs> 
Now it's time for a new segment we're calling You Asked For It, in which Darren and I tackle a topic suggested by you, the listeners. This week's topic was suggested by our Twitter buddy, Kingery, who asked that we discuss the new season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Challenge accepted, Kingery. Drag Race just started its 11th season on VH1, and joining us to talk about the latest season of the Emmy-winning reality competition, which is a mix of America's Next Top Model, Project Runway, and Monday Nights at Therapy NYC, is EW's official drag race expert, Joey Nilfie. Hi, Joey. Hi. So, Joey, thank you for being here. Darren and I have a lot of questions. I'm sure um, you do, yes. Yeah, I haven't. I watched the show in season one a little bit, but I hadn't really dipped back in, and, and it was just a wonder. The progression since then oh. is insane. I mean, so let's just start with this. First of all, Miss um, Vangie. <laughs> she arrives. She's a big deal. She apparently is a has a history with the franchise. Can you sum up her backstory a little bit? Yeah, she's a drag race legend. And, you know, as all legends um, do, uh, the story begins with wigs, heels, and tragedy, <laughs> actually. Um, so she was actually cast on season 10 okay. first. Uh, she was uh, one of the, I think it was 13 or 14 queens. Uh, she came into the workroom with this crazy outfit. It looked like a birdcage. She was just as outgoing uh, then as she is now now. Uh, and everybody's really excited about her. She's the drag daughter of uh, a former contestant named Alexis Mateo. Uh, so she had a lot to live up to. Uh, she didn't do so well in the first episode. Uh, it was a challenge where they had to make outfits out of dollar store items. Oh, uh, awesome. yeah, yeah, so she chose flowers and Barbie dolls to mm. do hers. Didn't work out so well. She had to lip sync. Uh, she actually kicked her shoe off accidentally during the lip sync. No. Yes, that is the level of Miss Vangie that, that you got on season 10, and uh, even only uh, on one episode. And uh, she was eliminated, and the thing that sort of started her legacy was she walked backwards down the runway after she was eliminated, just <laughs> chanting her name, just going, Miss Vangie. Miss Vanjie and it was a thing before it was a thing because yeah. while they filmed this show, you know, a year before, right. they were referencing it on every single episode after that. And then when it came out, the fans made it a viral thing. So she's a legend. She has after one episode became a legend That's on Drag Race. Incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they knew they just had to they bring had her to back. Bring her back yeah. What is a drag daughter? So a drag daughter is there are different drag houses. So it's just, you know, collectives of like, have you seen it's a little different, but have you seen the show Pose? Yes, has, I love has it. Kristen, yes. Has Kristen Baldwin seen Pose? <laughs> I just had to make sure. I, yeah. I figured, but I just had to make sure. Uh, yeah, I it's, see. Okay. It's 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 a little like uh, uh, you know. House uh, Evangelista. Right, right, right. right. Okay. So it's like a collective sort of uh, artistic little family, so nice. and they share names. And actually, a lot of the queens on this season are from drag houses of, you know, uh, past contestants. So, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Joey, so I, I have to admit something that I'm truly embarrassed about. This uh, premiere is the first episode of RuPaul's Drag Race I've ever seen. Wow. And it's it's embarrassing because, I mean, I, I just, I, I love this show. And I, I was very much adjacent to it for a long time. Uh, you know, um, uh, before you were covering the show, uh, our, our great former colleague Tanner Stransky did wonderful recaps of the show that I would kind of dip in and dip out of. But the show itself is, it's so wonderful. I have a lot of questions, but I'd love to know, as someone who's been with it for so long, um, you know, we're kind of 10 years 
into the show now. Are there major noticeable ways that it's changed or, or evolved in terms of the competition or just the overall vibe of uh, the show? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure, Kristen, as you know, from watching season one, just the aesthetic mm-hmm. is so much different. I mean, mm-hmm. that filter on season one, that is a running joke. I mean, it <laughs> literally looks like Vaseline is on the the uh, the lens. Um, so the production values have gone yes. way up, especially since moving to VH1, which right. I think had a big impact on the way that the game is played. Uh, the challenges are a lot different. I mean, uh, you started out having a lot of challenges that were sort of tied to the bare bones of drag, like sewing and, you know, more making your own outfits and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, photo shoots. Uh, but whereas now it is uh, more about acting and comedy and music and uh, they do these big, you know, production numbers. It's almost yeah. like a play or something. Yeah. Uh, they do multiple of those challenges each season. So I, I would say the way that, uh, you know, as drag has become more mainstream because of Drag Race, the challenges have sort of changed to suit the kind of career that a drag queen would have after the show. Um, so going out on world tours and doing music videos. So it's okay. more tailored to that to make them stars after, I think. And the production values, I said, have gone way up. So they've they've put a lot of money into making these things pretty elaborate. And it's really paid off. I mean, the show is now uh, in the zeitgeist yeah. in a way that you never could have imagined. I mean, uh, Shangela is in A Star is Born. Yes. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, you, you can't get better than that. So we met our first groups of contestants. Do you... I don't know if you're allowed to say this out loud, but do you have any favorites or front runners? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so the ones that stand out to me in terms of what Drag Race has sort of gone for in the past um, are Brooke, Brooklyn Heights. Uh, she's so tall. She's so gorgeous. And that, that uh, she has that background as a dancer. Yeah. And I think that they're going to have a really tough time sending her home if she lands in the bottom because she's just going to turn it out yeah. dancing every single time. So I have my eye on her. Uh, Akaria. Uh, she's from a really regal drag family. Uh, one of the past contestants, Kennedy Davenport, is in her drag family, and Kennedy uh, is is sort of a fan favorite. So she's she's done okay. well in the past. Um, she's also from the pageant scene, which is I mean, so she's very polished. Uh, she was very funny too. We just did a whole bunch of videos with them, and she was really really funny. Oh, I wasn't expecting that from her. Uh, Plastique is definitely <laughs> going to hit with the drag race fans <laughs> because she is just so gorgeous. She's I mean, she gorgeous. Looks like a biological woman. She really does. Yeah she does um uh so I, I i mean i could see them maybe at some point faulting her in the comedy challenges i can't imagine her doing too well in those but uh just based on looks i mean she's the fishiest queen do you guys know that that term fishy? no i do not oh so we have a lot to learn <laughs> uh fishy is and if there's any terms that i'm using feel free to stop me yes, and just I will. be like what what does this mean uh so fishy is basically when you just look like a real woman I am uncomfortable with that term, but okay. Really? (laughs) Well, why does that make you uncomfortable? Why fishy? I'm not sure. I, I Are we sure no you're idea. not sure? I'm 100% sure I don't know. Because okay. I've heard it as tilapia. I've heard it as fishy. I've, I, I have tilapia. no Tilapia? Yes. Oh, uh, my Gia God. Gun used Maybe the... I'm just I'm uh, reading oh, too I much think, into I it. I think I can tell why you you're <laughs> might be reading into it. That might be the, the reason. I honestly have never looked into it. I uh, don't know. Yes. Let me okay. ask, let me ask uh, just a couple of the show. I, I marked down. I love all the vocabulary and, of course, was very confused by it. Um, <laughs> th- th- there was some talk in, in this uh, premiere about like what sounded like kind of subcategories mm-hmm. of queen. Yeah. Um, my, my personal favorite uh, in, in the premiere was Evie Oddly, and, yeah. and she said she was a, quote, conceptual queen. Uh, somebody else mentioned being a comedy queen. Are, are there, are, does everyone kind of fall into categories? And I, I guess I, I wonder, I mean, are there certain categories or certain skill sets that tend to 
play better and last longer on a on a season of uh, Drag Race. Mm, I, I mean, it, it definitely they do fall into their own little categories, uh, and that is something that's brought up frequently. I would say that if you look at the winners and in terms of who makes it to the end, uh, you know, the top three or four, it's it's been a different. Uh, if you want to classify them into different categories, it's been a really good representation. I think in the past few seasons, uh, in terms of their background, I mean, you've had pageant queens, comedy queens, conceptual queens like Sasha Velour, fashion queens like Violet Chachki. Uh, so basically any sort of, you know, uh, descriptor, you can throw that in yeah. front of Queen and that becomes its own uh, subcategory. So <laughs> is it was it was it good or bad for Evie Oddly that she came out with a crazy like 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 like, like, like hot wheels? Which is amazing. <laughs> oh, God, uh, that I think is definitely a good thing. I mean, she got some shade from the other queens, but that is something that you're going to see a lot of memes on throughout, you know, the season right. of her odd creations. People are going to make memes out of that for sure so you're and definitely what is the style of pageant queen versus a different type of queen like you mentioned before that pageant queens are more polished how are, how do those pageants differ from the types of challenges that we see on this show? Well, sometimes the pageant challenges, I mean, actually, or, or there are challenges that are more in line with what would happen at a pageant. Okay. I mean, since pageants, uh, pageants for, you know, uh, drag queens are a lot like pageants for cisgender women. Uh, it's, you know, gauging talent and beauty and, and, and things like and that. All that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, you know, when you see them stepping out on the runway in, uh, you know, what they call eleganza look, it's more, you know, the elegant sort of pageant style gowns. So there will be a, a runway challenge here and there that, that you know, is suited to the pageant girls. But uh, yeah, pageant is, is, I sometimes find that some of the queens use it as a negative describing the others. They'll say, oh, well, she's so pageant it, to mean she's very regal and very, mm -hmm. you know, she holds her head high and is a little bit of a diva and maybe won't do so good at 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 things like comedy challenges. Right. Uh, so that's why you hear it on the show sometimes used as a negative is to describe somebody whose capabilities might be a little bit more limited to looks instead of performance. I see. Well, and uh, so you mentioned a little bit about this before, Joey, but um, on the uh, premiere episode, um, someone kind of mentioned that like there's a key piece of advice RuPaul's always had, which is basically like you, you should know how to sew, that like that's a big part of, of the season. Um, there were a couple of queens who seemed like they were better performers and not necessarily that good at putting the costumes together. But it sounds like it, it sounds like that's less of a problem in, in, in the later seasons that like it actually is it better to be a pure performer and not necessarily lean so much in that? Or, or do you kind of need to be a little bit of both you have to kind of be able to put stuff together on the fly and also do comedy and drama what sounds like a lot of other <laughs> interesting um performative challenges yeah i think that sewing and and making your own outfits was definitely something that drag as an art form is built on you know queens doing that all throughout history but i think the drag race brand of drag it's not so important because i think that a lot of these queens prepare their outfits with designers beforehand yeah so i would say you know this will probably Probably, if uh, judging by recent seasons, this will probably be the only uh, challenge that we see okay. that is them actually constructing something from scratch. Uh, they usually come with outfits prepared. Uh, they'll go to designers and say, "Hey, I need this, 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 and this," and then shell out the cash. And, and yeah. that's usually how it happens. Uh, I don't know how the rest of the season goes. We'll see. I would like to see more of that. It is but fun it, to yeah. watch them. You know, it's create like Project things. Runway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but. 
Um, I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Oh, well, uh, uh, you kind of answered it, and um, that's interesting to hear because, yeah, I, I loved that kind of challenge in the premiere, and I, I believe it was basically like they had to take uh, clothes and, and materials from uh, earlier Drag Race uh, contestants, right, and, and, yep. and, and kind of put them together. Yeah, I, I, I really loved that. I guess that is the more kind of, uh, as you said, Project Runway-ish aspect of the show. Um, yeah, I, 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 I am intrigued, though, now to hear that you've kind of just said it's, it's a Evolved towards the kind of stardom aspect of becoming mm -hmm. a, a a drag queen. Was there a kind of season in particular where you felt that shift, or has that just been a sort of steady swing over over the last ten years? Mm. I, I think as it started to get more viewers, yeah. uh, that's when it it started becoming okay. So who can be a celebrity, right. you know, as opposed to just a good drag queen? And I, I think that shift started pretty early on um, when you see. Uh, Raja, who won season three, was actually on America's Next Top Model as nice. the makeup artist Sutan. Do you remember him? No. Um, yeah, he was on America's Next Top Model before that. Uh, so that that was the first sort of pre-established personality, okay. I think, who had already who had won Drag Race. And I think since then, it's been you know queens who who have star potential as opposed to yeah. just being good good drag queens. So. So I have a very sort of girly question, maybe. Um, <laughs> when they were first de-dragging all the queens were kind of checking each other out and saying like oh she's cute she's cute um are there ever romances during the season uh not so much during the season okay. i mean last year uh cameron michaels was literally a bodybuilder drag queen so when he took off his stuff on the first episode and was walking around the workroom and literally just like a thong and his backwards baseball cap with his muscles out <laughs> all the queens were looking at him yeah but uh i've never seen this many queens thirsting after each other on the first episode so quickly. This one definitely surprised me. Uh, but there have been relationships, you know, uh, outside the show. Um, Alaska, who won uh, All Stars 2, and Sharon Needles, who won the fourth season, they were in a very long relationship oh. even before the show. Um, they're actually both from my hometown of Pittsburgh, so oh. I got to see them a lot uh, actually growing up. Um, uh, there, there was uh, actually Jinx Monsoon and Ivy Winters from season five. Uh, they uh, editing kind of they played up a, a romance between them, but they both came out after the show and said we no we we, we yeah. don't feel that way about each other. <laughs> and then um, there's also an interesting connection between uh, Miss Cracker from last season and Bob the Drag Queen winner of season eight. Uh, there's an interview somewhere floating around there, I believe that talks about certain relations that they might have had yeah. upon their first time meeting. Uh, so it, it definitely happens outside the show, but yeah, not so much on the show. Can I just say, even you saying all these different <laughs> names, there's there's such a like dizzying <laughs> quality to how fun this show is. Yeah, I mean, it and, is. And, and, and and again, I, I apologize. I'm I'm coming into this, you know, ten years deep, and just even like um, something that really struck me about the show, Joey, was just the speed of the gags, uh, especially yeah. when it when it got to the kind of judging period, um, was so remarkable. There was one moment where I couldn't tell which judge. But um, one of the queens walked out with hair that looked a little bit like uh, like Tina Turner's in Thunderdome mm, in, mm -hmm. in a Mad Max movie, and someone made a quick reference to that, and it was like two seconds. And I was like, "This is incredible! Like, how is 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 that kind of like um, the sort of like the sort of like whip smart, you know, puns and jokes? Was that always kind of present in the show, or is that something that's just kind of really accelerated as it's kind of gone to VH1 and as as the budget has um, has, has ramped up? Because it almost it almost feels like like I'm watching like like 
like you know, like airplane or something. The sheer <laughs> the sheer rate of jokes yes, and gags jokes coming at minute. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really remarkable. Yeah, it, that definitely has become a drag race tradition. That's something that people look forward to is is seeing the critiques on the runway. And I think that that has gotten better as the celebrity guest judges have gotten bigger because they're getting bigger comedians yeah. and more improv style comedians to be on the show. Um, yeah, I would say I just rewatched because Logo was doing a marathon of every single season oh, leading wow. up to to season eleven. So I was watching some of the quips that were happening on season one, and they definitely weren't as good as the stuff that's happening now. And I think that they know <laughs> that that is a thing that fans are are looking for. So they, I mean, you have Ross Matthews, yeah, sitting up he's there great. riffing. Yeah, he's quick on his feet, so he's going to come up with the funniest stuff. So it's great. And uh, obviously, you know, spoiler alert, although this aired last week, uh, you know, we said goodbye to Soju. And I was interested that she was cast because, you know, it seemed that her, her relationship to drag was essentially doing a YouTube review series of Drag Race. And some of the other queens actually did seem to give her a little bit of side eye, like, does she even perform? Yeah. Has a fan sort of been cast before? It seemed like she was a fan who got to live her dream and be on the show. Is that something that we've seen before? Uh, n not necessarily. I think when you when you think about a Drag Race fan making it onto the show, I think it's different than as if a fan of The Amazing Race were to get on The Amazing right. Race. It's because uh, drag, drag Race is sort of the standard for mainstream drag, and I think that's an important distinction to make. For ma It's a standard for mainstream drag, because right. there's so many different types of drag that exist outside of the world of Drag Race. Uh, so I think when you see someone like Soju, it's somebody who has grown up with watching the show and has molded their style of drag based off of what they see on the show. Yeah. But she also has a lot of cultural influ influences in yeah. hers as well. Um, so I think that uh, to say that she is, you know, uh, uh, just a fan who made it on the show is is not what you might right. be assume with a fan from a different show making it onto a different reality show. I think there's a different distinction. But as you heard Nina say this episode, she has auditioned nine times. Uh, yeah. Other drag race winners like Aquaria and Violet Chachki have said that they they literally grew up watching the show and it has molded how they've done drag. So I think it, you have to be a fan before yeah. going on the show. You have to know how the game is played. You have to know what to expect in the workroom to fit into, you know, all the challenges. You have to know what you're getting into. So you have to be a fan, I think, to, to get on the show. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, hopefully uh, and nobody could she possibly come back, do you think? Like, Miss Vangie? Anything is possible <laughs> in the realm of Drag Race. Um, on the show where I was making notes of my favorite moments on a show that, you know, in the same breath as they're praising somebody for wearing five wigs, they're talking about tendonitis cysts. Literally <laughs> anything can happen on this show. Uh, so, I mean, you get Miley Cyrus and Boy Drag walking through as a so production good. assistant named BJ. Uh, I mean, that's anything can happen. So, well, and, and, and it's so great that, like, you know, it's not just that Miley Cyrus is guesting and not just that she then yeah kind of you know goes in drag as a you know as a as a camera person um as a as, as a cameraman um but also then the the, the final kind of act of, of the show being the lip sync battle uh with her Hannah Montana song yeah. with the best of both worlds I was almost in tears I mean that really because then it cut to her sort of singing along to her from when she was younger there's there's such a quality of just like meticulous hyperbole to this show which which I just I I I, I really love 
Joey, while we have you, I love doing this with people who cover reality shows in depth. It's so unfair. But can you right now name the person you think is definitely going to win uh, th- th- this season? I've been I know, thinking it's, about it's, this a lot. It's, it's yeah. impossible. Yeah. If you do this every season, then you'll get it like one time out of ten. <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> it's very difficult because there's so much that goes into picking a Drag Race winner. Uh, I, I would say... Oh, God, that is really difficult. If I had to pick one, I, I'm i thinking Acaria. Interesting. Yes. I would have to go based on talent and skill, uh, based on being around her for a little bit the other day. Uh, Acaria has the, the superstar That's factor. That's the right sure. stuff. Yes, yes. Well, we perhaps we will have you back on after the finale and that. we can discuss. Anytime. Well, thank you so much, Joey, yes, thank you for, uh, for coming me. and educating us about Drag Race, which <laughs> I love now. RuPaul's Drag Race airs Thursdays at 9 on VH1. Now it's time for a segment we call TV Talk, where we talk about TV. Specifically, Kristen, <laughs> this week, we are going to talk about limited series, formerly known as miniseries. This is a style of television that dates throughout the history of TV, of filmed TV drama. Um, but this decade, something a little special, and I would say quite confusing has happened, yes. where you have this emergence of the notion of the limited series as a major small screen event and more notably as something that every kind of creative person in Hollywood, whether you're a movie star, whether you're an award-winning actor, whether you are a director who's made big feature films, um, it now seems as if one of the big things you were thinking of doing is a limited series, is a mini-series for television, for streaming. And that's a pretty major shift, Kristen. I guess I want to talk about it a little bit in the context of two recent limited series. And I have to keep putting these in quotes because in one case, I'm not sure that even really... uh, applause. Just last week, you had the finale of the third season of True Detective, the anthology which began with the eight-episode limited story of Matthew McConaughey telling us about time being a flat circle. Then came Colin Farrell's mustache. Then came <laughs> Mahershala <laughs> Ali giving a great performance in old age makeup. Three different um, time periods. Three different time periods. Th- three different versions of Stephen Dorff. Frankly, not enough, uh, I-, I would say. Yeah. Um, you also have uh, just this this evening sees the finale of I Am the Night, the TNT mm. show that we talked about a few weeks ago um, that comes from Patty Jenkins, a, a major director who, who most recently uh, was working on Wonder Woman, is now working on Wonder Woman 2. Uh, it stars Chris Pine, everyone's favorite Hollywood Chris at this point, I Love think. Love him. And it feels a little bit like I Am the Night has been, if not totally lost in the shuffle of, of modern television, it certainly is a show that doesn't seem like it's quite hit the buzz level that I assume. TNT was was hoping for Um, in this and this this all happening at the same time when True Detective ended in a way that fair to say mixed reviews I didn't like it very much I didn't like it very much well well you know I I I have to say I didn't like it very much I've talked to different viewers who also didn't like it I've talked to a couple who've like doubled down on how much they love season three interesting it it, it certainly is fair I I think to say that uh, very few people would say season three lived up to the first one either in terms of quality certainly not in in terms of overall audience and I guess I just want to know Kristen how do you feel about where we are now with limited series this is just something 
that, you know, you go back in time and there were moments where, whether it was Roots, whether it was Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice, whether it was something like The Stand, you know, it certainly was there in television. But just in the last few years, post-American Horror Story, post-True Detective, it's become such a bigger part of the landscape. Yes. Um, and I'm still not sure that that many of them are all that good. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that is, that's a very accurate point. Um, first, I just want to start by saying how the Emmys defines limited series, just so that we can be working off the same template. Limited series is defined as a program with two or more episodes with a total running time of at least 150 program minutes. And the the show must tell a complete non-recurring story and does not have an ongoing storyline and or main characters in subsequent seasons. So to help put that into context, Downton Abbey, when it first premiered, was entered under the limited series category because PBS didn't think they were going to do any more. And then obviously it it went on for multiple seasons and it then went into uh, into drama category. Big Little Lies, another example of something that was supposed to be a limited series, not come back, you know, with new uh, with new story and the same characters, but in fact, it it is now coming back. And I guess what I would say, th- these are both examples of something that I see as the biggest problem with limited series right now is that they're not limited, yep. and that these shows, uh, you know, become a hit, and you know, great, that's great. They should become a hit um, if they're good. But then the networks or the cast or the producers feel the need to keep going when the story should really just end. And I think that the the person who has figured this out um, is Ryan Murphy. No matter what you think about American Horror Story, and I have a lot of problems with American Horror Story, <laughs> I will say that uh, with American Crime Story, and even with Feud, I'm not sure if he'll continue with Feud, those are shows that are designed to be an anthology in that you may have the same cast members going forward, but it'll be a totally new story. And I wish that they had done that with things like Big Little Lies. You know, for ex- there, there are other shows. Look, I loved Killing Eve, but spoiler alert, uh, if you haven't seen it, and honestly, like, do not tweet at me if you, uh, and tell me that it's I'm- It's a year ru- late. It's a year, it's a year late. late. Don't tweet at me and tell you <laughs> I'm ruining the ending. It should have ended with Eve killing Villanelle. That should have been it. You're saying sort of like more of the kind of repertory style yes. where you'd have, th- this is something that I, I, I often think that in a sense that might be both the best and worst thing about American Horror Story is that in the first few seasons you did have something that is really, you know, you had this much more in, in the old days of Hollywood when everyone worked Mm -hmm. for the same studio and it was possible that you'd have like the same director writer combination and set of actors would would do multiple things together it's so uh, unusual now but with American Horror Story early on you did have that where you had really talented performers who each year were like I'm in for anything what am I doing this year okay now I have two heads fine like I I can do that (laughs) then it's strange that 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 then became one of the kind of counter examples you're talking about where you suddenly have American Horror Story by its eighth season is now telling an ongoing tale set in this, you know, elaborate world. And that's where it gets a little bit like, you know, season two of The Sinner was sort of like, okay, we're following the same, we're following the same investigator in a slightly less interesting case. Or, you know, to your point about Big Little Lies, we are returning to this space and these people that everyone really loved with a story that we'll see, I guess, is kind of the the, the question there. It it really does often happen with shows based on books. You know, 13 Reasons Why had a Clear beginning, middle, and end, and the show really, really, really 
should have stopped after season one. Season two, I ultimately ended up thinking was okay, but it really, uh, it should have ended after season one. Um, Handmaid's Tale had a very uneven season two, and uh, the ending did not inspire confidence for season three. Who knows? That's one that had a slight more success in season two, but it was quite uneven, so I'm a little worried about season three. And I know you feel differently about this, Darren, but big little lies. Like, if those actresses wanted... (laughs) To work together again, why didn't they just do a totally know, new story? I know. My my pitch on Big Little Lies season two, and it's it's only <laughs> I, I've only dug down deeper into this because everyone I know who's very intelligent and has great taste constantly tells me that it, it is it is a less than great idea to do a season two. My only pitch on season two of that show is that I am very intrigued, spoiler alert for two years ago now, to find <laughs> out what happens when all these different women are, are covering up the same murder. And that's that's something that I'm sort of interested in. That being said, like I am willing to accept, like I, I, I will accept more blame than anyone involved with season two if it winds up being bad, because I will be the fan who is like, I want more, and right. of course that it's not going to be that great. Kristen, I'd love to know what is like your reigning example of a good limited series from from this decade. What's your kind of go to for like this is like a story it was told in the exact right amount of time. It could have only been told in this sort of mini series. Fashion and and it, it was designed in such a way where there is no future for it. There's no way you can you know do a season two or an anthology version or a, or and you know a a version of an anthology that will become a universe at, at some point. I I think you know this is not going to come as a surprise to you, but I I think that American Crime Story, specifically Assassination of Gianni Versace, is a perfect example of you know the OJ Crime Story series was fantastic, um, and but Gianni Versace I think was just really sublime across the board but that's an example of like that's a limited series there's no sequel there's no like let's find out what happened in the houseboat like no it's over it's done he's dead everyone's dead like just leave it and uh i i appreciate that and that was a a really smart and interesting and unique way to tell that story Uh, i think you know essentially with uh with OJ too, that, you know, Ryan Murphy found a way to re-examine this flashpoint in pop culture and in our society's culture that also, you know, kind of helped us re-examine what we thought of Marsha Clark and the working woman and how she was vilified at that time, you know, and that was in- incredible too. So I that I think is the best example. Do you have yeah. a, a favorite? I do. And let me hit you with this, Kristen. This goes back to my kind of basic semantics argument when we talk about limited series. Because, um, you know, you sort of mentioned that the Emmys have this definition for limited series. But guess what? There's been a lot of category fraud there, almost to a comical degree yes. at times. Like, um, I, I, I think the Tremay's last season and the C-Words last season were both somehow considered limited series, um, which just, you know, it gets to my feeling that we don't have a good enough definition for these yet. Yes. Um, and strangely, I love uh, uh, People v. O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Something about that almost... It almost feels like part of an ongoing story, you know. Like, like it, it feels as if, like, you know, that kind of slots in after one's experience of the original case, and it's also kind of tied in very strongly with me with um, OJ Made in America, which was the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the great documentary series. So w- when I think about like what's a limited series that truly stands on its own, um, there's one. 
and, and this is where I, you know, what, I would sometimes want to bring up Twin Peaks here, but Twin Peaks season right. three, I mean, it, it was, it, it required encyclopedic knowledge of a 25-year-old show and a movie that almost <laughs> nobody saw. I mean, you know, it's it's very hard for me to call that right. anything but a sequel series or a continuation. Um, but the, the two that I just jumped to, um, there's HBO's The Night Of, uh. which I, I think was just such a... A perfectly, except for maybe that one kiss, a perfectly, <laughs> a, 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 except for that one kiss, it was just a, a perfectly told story that to me really felt like, we talk so much about TV as a novel, but it really felt like just a good, solid crime novel that had been incredibly well acted, and individual characters, like the, the sort of gruff cop on the edge of retirement, um, they just seemed so perfect in such a way where like... I don't think anybody who liked Night Of wants any more of it. I think it's just very much like that's something you can return to. Um, and the other one would be, uh, oddly enough, one of the main practitioners of the HBO miniseries in the last 20 years has been uh, David Simon, who did stuff like The Coroner and Generation mm-hmm. Kill. Um, and in 2015, he did the Show Me a Hero series, oh, yeah. um, w- which I always really stump for. And I think one thing about it that in a similar way to... Um, to the Versace show, it took a real life story and it just felt like it did the full panorama, you know? I mean, like um, with the Versace show, you just got these wonderful individual episodes focused on these individual people involved in this, you know, ongoing horror show. Um, and in Show Me a Hero, you kind of covered seven years of time in Yonkers from seemingly every perspective. And yeah. you were kind of cutting across, you know, Oscar Isaac was the star of the show, but the cast was gigantic. And I, I always kind of say that, like, if you love David Simon um, and you kind of love his style of show, where there's, you know, 120 people you have to keep track of. Um, Show Me a Hero was kind of, it was like like a a six-hour shot of that. It was like, you know, if you could just mix together all of The Wire or mix together all Mm. of Treme into six episodes. And I think that that's, it's interesting that we're both gravitating to um, stories that were based on true events. I I wonder if there's some special juice there, um, as opposed to, you know, again, I I really don't want to rag too much on the later true detectives but those, those don't to you me, though those to me well I, I i do i just listen i really didn't like this season despite some really wonderful acting um but but those to me seem to almost have the strange problem where you know you seem to have taken like a movie of plot and, and stretched yes, it out yes. and 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 not kind of added in the requisite amount of you know detail of, of world building of character um that would sort of infuse this material and and i would say as much as i again great acting across the board sharp objects would kind of fall into that yeah. f- fall into that rung for me too of just like here is really great acting just sprayed at you and yet we sort of have a mystery plot that dwindles for the middle you know four or five hour- hours of the show and that's that's always my concern with limited series now and in yeah. a sense I, I think it may be what sort of happened for people with I Am The Night um, which was a very very kind of slow start and again I, I hope people stuck around for the fifth episode I was actually <laughs> I was actually paid to, and I'm, I'm very glad that I did. But I, I, I worry that now we're at this point where we do have these stories being developed that just don't quite sustain, uh, you know, that many hours of, of exactly. I mean, I think if we were to sum it up, uh, you know, our campaign slogan would be "Put the limited back in limited series." <laughs> you know, whether whether you're telling a new story or not, just you know, don't stretch it out because, uh, and you know. I just think, honestly, 
any any show where you think there's a reasonable chance that you might do a second season, don't enter it into limited series entry at the Emmys. It's just such BS. I know. It's so ridiculous. Although, Chris, I will say, behind that big slogan that you are now holding up with a giant sign, yes. I'm going to hold up a much smaller sign that says, I believe in you, Big Little Lies, season two. <laughs> Meryl Streep? Ooh, okay. Sign me up. You're the counter-protester um, on the other side behind the barricade. Fine. Fine. You I'm, may be right. I'm, I'm doing some very quiet counter-protesting. And just so you know, if it comes out and it's bad, it's one of those things where on the other side of the sign, it says, boo, big little lies, season two. <laughs> I, am, I am willing to, I am willing to uh, jump the line uh, if, if that happens. Um, Kristen, that about wraps it up for this week's episode of Best of Shows. Thanks very much to Joey Nolfi for coming in and laying down so much great drag race knowledge we'll definitely be talking to him more uh, as that season gets further along listeners you can subscribe to ew's best of shows wherever you find your podcast give us a rating give us a review Kristen and i were critics we love criticism we love positive <laughs> we love positive criticism we love negative criticism we live off of it uh you can send us a tweet at christian g baldwin that's her at darren franich that's me and hey if you tweet at us we might do a whole segment for you exactly just, just like our pal kingery uh, Kingery, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, um, but uh, at Kingery, hold on, I have it here. It's at Kingery 0582817. Um, listen, that, that was a whole part of our show today. That that, that, that was all for, for you. So, uh, you know, keep those tweets coming. We, 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 we love to hear from you. Um, and uh, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So bye. Bye.